Welcome to Women Leading the Way Radio Show, where each time you'll hear from successful women CEOs, executives, and professionals, where we'll discover how they do what they do to be successful in business. We'll be interviewing women who have overcome big challenges, women who have incredible stories of lessons learned in dealing with adversity. We'll even interview women who have started and grown successful organizations and women who are C-level executives with unique talents and positions. Our goal is to bring successful businesswomen together to share how they're leading the way in business today. Good morning and welcome to Women Lead Radio, brought to you by Connected Women of Influence. I'm Jamie Pittman, President and CEO of Workplace Guardians, Inc., and your host for Workplace Violence Prevention and Intervention. Our show topic today is, How Did We Get Here?, And we're looking at that from two angles. How did we get here regarding the topic of workplace violence prevention, but also how did we get here, meaning myself and my guests. Um, Our our leading lady today, our special guest, is Dr. Suzanne Hoffman. Uh, Sue and I work together at Workplace Guardians, Inc. And uh, Sue, thank you so much for making time this morning to be with us. Absolutely. Thanks, Jamie. So I wanted to start by talking about how you ended up getting into this field of work. I know you had been working on a a special degree and take it from there. Okay. Well, you know, it's interesting because when I was in graduate school, I didn't, I never even knew this line of work existed. Honestly, I was, went through graduate school and was trained, really kind of classically trained as a clinical psychologist. And it was interesting because I had just finished um, the licensing process in California and was looking for a job. And I saw, and back then it was in the newspaper, <laughs> this was the late 90s, early 2000s, <laughs> saw an ad um, for a consulting firm that was looking for a psychologist to help with psychological assessment. So I thought, well, gosh, you know, why don't I apply? I applied and met the owner of the firm, who was Tony Barron, um, who was an organizational psychologist. And at that time, he was really one of the pioneers in workplace violence prevention. So um, they did hire me on initially, and I was kind of interested and a little bit scared of the topic, but I was hired on and began to work with Tony. And that was really my very first experience um, with work. And I have to tell you, I think I was hired on like a Friday. And the next week, there was one of his clients had a shooting in their workplace. So my first day with Tony was leaving at 6.30 in the morning to go up to Los Angeles from San Diego uh, to respond to a violent incident and work with the folks who were victims there. Um, So it was quite a sort of introduction um, by fire, so to speak, into this particular field. Oh, my gosh. I can't even imagine that. Yes. Yes. So it was interesting. Um, You know, my husband was like, oh, my gosh, where are you going and what are you doing? But it really helped me sort of understand kind of what was going on. You know, it's interesting because at that time, um, the biggest 
incidents that we were seeing were really related to the post office, and some of you may remember that. Um, you know, workplace violence has been happening, I think, as long as people have been working. Um, but honestly, the earliest documented cases were like in the early 1970s. But it was really these post office incidents, the biggest one being in 1986 in Oklahoma, and then some that followed after that, that really brought workplace violence to sort of a national consequence, or I'm sorry, national um, awareness. And so at that time, people were sort of afraid that co-employees or people that work for them would sort of what we would call snap and go crazy. Um, and some of you may remember at that time that there was this vernacular or this phrase that people used about people going postal. Um, and that was really related to those incidents. So at that time, and as I started to get into the field, Tony and I would really be there to help assess for organizations. We would get calls because somebody was concerned about an employee or somebody that they had terminated. Um, and we really looked at it not only from an individual person perspective, meaning is this person a threat or not to the workplace, but we also started to look at it from an organizational perspective um, and the intersection between those two things. And we really found also and began to look at at that time what things in an organizational climate might contribute either to stabilizing somebody who might be fairly unstable uh, or one that would escalate the situation and sometimes precede the violent act. So I think we were very early on looking at not only the individual pieces but the organizational pieces. Yeah, I remember that Dr. Barron was considered a pioneer in the field, but as you started working in the area, was there any kind of research uh, available for you to rely on, or were you and Dr. Barron sort of leading the way? You know, it was pretty limited at that time, and certainly we had research related to violent behavior, but what we had a lot less of was violent behavior in the workplace and that organizational piece that I talked about. So I do think we began, uh, along with others, to sort of lead the way in trying to understand what might be going on for employers um, and what they needed to be looking for and implement in their workplaces to really create what we call safe workplaces. Yeah, when I joined the firm um, shortly after you did, I remember my mandate being to get people to listen and take seriously this threat of violence in the workplace. Um, that's how early on we were, that they really thought it was limited to the office. Um, what can you tell us about steps that companies were taking at that time to combat or res respond to a threat of workplace violence? You know, it's very interesting because I think at that time we saw employers being more reactive than proactive. There weren't really a lot of templates for how to respond to workplace violence incident or somebody who maybe was making a threat in the workplace or even somebody who maybe had a partner that was threatening them in a domestic violence type of situation. So we saw people being reactive. We saw people calling us when threats had escalated to a point that got them very, very concerned. And we also did see employers begin to implement workplace violence prevention training. And particularly we saw this with public agency employers, which I thought was very, very interesting, but they are people who are exposed to the public, uh, and that put them at a little bit of a higher risk. So we began to develop specific training programs at that time 
for our clients. Um, we've developed training programs for employees, and we've developed training programs for managers, which were separate, and really helped train them around how to manage employees who may be exhibiting signs that something just wasn't quite right or signs that there was conflict in the workplace with the idea that we wanted to intervene as quickly as possible if we see something that's concerning. Um, we also saw the beginning at that time of organizations developing workplace violence prevention policies um, that would go along in their employee handbooks with things like their sexual harassment policy or their conduct policy. Um, and that was a really important step at that time because it gave employers really a foothold to take action and have processes to respond during that time if they had something that they were concerned about. And I will say, unfortunately, during that time, we also just had a lot of clients that were more passive. and. Honestly, if there was a threat, they hoped that a difficult employee or somebody who was threatening would, you know, they'd cross their fingers and hope they would go away or they would retire or they would move on. And we really found that to be, of course, the most ineffective um, and sometimes least safe way to proceed when we had somebody who was threatening in the workplace. If an employer had an indication of trouble, problems brewing or a problematic employee, what kinds of uh, support would you be able to give them at that time? Oh, at that time, we'd definitely be able to consult with that organization. And sometimes that would involve talking to the individual of concern. The employee that was maybe having a difficult time, made a threat, was having conflict with individuals in the workplace. We'd also talk to that person's supervisor or the HR department. Um, and by gathering information, we were able to develop and work with the em employer to develop some sort of plan to respond. The other thing we did um, is we really looked at the impact of other people in the workplace because when you have an employee who is traumatizing or threatening, um, other people are affected. And you've got other employees that are scared. So we really worked with employers to address that, work with EAP and other resources uh, to help those who may have been affected by that behavior. Tell me a little bit more, if you could, about those responses and the people that you pulled together to help respond uh, to the potential threat? Well, you know, it's interesting. That is really where we began to look at having what we call a team approach, a multidisciplinary team approach to these incidents. Whenever we're talking about an employer relationship, there's always legal issues involved. So part of that team would typically involve that person's either in-house counsel or external employment counsel. Uh, we'd involve human resources. With our response, we typically involve a mental health professional if that was appropriate for that time, um, and a threat assessment professional, so somebody who had been trained specifically in threat assessment and workplace violence. And often we would have to involve security professionals, depending upon what the situation would, would involve. There were times when we would respond that we were concerned about escalating an individual, and those are the times when we might bring in uh, security for a period of time to just further secure the workplace as we moved through whatever that case might be. Great. That's great, Sue. Thanks. We're going to take a quick moment and recognize one of our important sponsors and partners. Uh, Women Lead Radio is brought to you today by Connected Women of Influence and our partner, National University. 
National University is proud to be one of the largest private nonprofit universities founded in 1971. The National University mission is to provide accessible, achievable higher education to adult learners. Today, National University educates students from across the U.S. and around the globe with over 170,000 alumni worldwide. Thank you for your support, National University, and to all our sponsors and partners. And now back to our show. Um, Sue, can we take a step forward and talk a little bit mm -hmm. about what is different today in our understanding of workplace violence than it was back when you first got started? Sure. And I really think there's been a lot, honestly. The field has evolved tremendously in terms of research, in terms of understanding what we're looking at, uh, in terms of what might contribute, uh, honestly, to workplace violence and the ways in which we create sort of what we call safe workplaces. So let me start by talking a little bit about understanding workplace violence and typology. Um, OSHA has created a typology for workplace violence. And what that really means is we're trying to understand workplace violence based upon perpetrator, based upon environment. So right now what we have is types one through four of workplace violence. And this really helps us tailor workplace violence response programs to what an individual employer's highest risk and next highest risk might be. So let me give you an example of that. Type one violence is when we have into a workplace to commit a crime. So that might be that somebody comes in to rob a 7-Eleven, they have no relationship with that particular employer, but they're coming in to commit a crime. Or somebody who comes in to rob a bank uh, or rob a cab driver, that's type one violence. Part of what we know is that retail establishments, cab drivers, um, they are at really high risk for this type one crime-related violence. So we encourage them to develop programs to train their employees to protect themselves from that particular type of violence and for those organizations to have things in place, physical security measures and so forth, to help secure that environment. Type two violence is where we have an individual who has a business relationship with that organization who's coming in to commit the act of violence. So, you know, an example of that might be um, somebody who is a patient in an emergency room and commits an act of violence against a healthcare worker or a student at a university, um, a client at a bank. That is type two type of violence. So there is some kind of customer relationship, and that is where type to violence happens. With type 2, for instance, we know that healthcare workers are at very high risk of being attacked by patients and patients' families. That's type 2. So we would encourage, again, those organizations to look at what kinds of workplace violence they have, uh, programs they have in place to address those issues. Type 3 is really the more traditional type of workplace violence that we think about when people say, oh, that was an act of workplace violence. That is where we have somebody who is an employee or former employee of the organization commit the act of, um, and again, that's more traditional what people typically think about. And then type 4 is the newest typology. It's not that new anymore, but it's really important because it is when we have domestic violence 
come into the workplace. Um, so this is where we have an individual who may be working at an office or at a retail establishment, and they're going through a, a difficult time or a breakup or some other thing in the relationship with another individual, and that person begins to target them at work and in the workplace. And, you know, some employers will say, well, you know, that's their personal life and we don't need to get involved. But the truth is we have seen so many cases of domestic violence carry over into the workplace. And it's really a concern because it puts everybody else in that workplace at risk if someone decides to come on site with a weapon or to target an individual uh, with regard to workplace violence. And I, I will say, and most people don't know this, but Workplace violence is a number one killer of women in the workplace, and a large part of it has to do with domestic violence crossing over to the workplace. So that's a really important way to understand workplace violence. It's helped us as this field has developed to help create more specific um, understandings of workplace violence and how we need to respond. You know, I think another thing that has become really important and has evolved is the idea of the impact of social media on workplace violence. And the idea that when we started in this field in the late 90s and early 2000s, we didn't have it. We didn't have social media. We didn't have text messaging. Um, the impact of social media has been pretty significant. And we've seen a number of perpetrators use social media to convey their threats. So that has become a standard in terms of assessing threats is looking at social media for signs that someone may be unstable or moving down what we talk about as the pathway to violence. Um, Sue, before we go on, let's just take a minute. I, it occurs to mm -hmm. me that people may want to get a hold of you or want to reach out or learn more mm -hmm. about the, the types of services that you can provide. How would you recommend people get a hold of you? So, you know, probably the easiest way is just to go to our website, which is www.workplaceguardians, all one word, .com, and you can reach me, you can reach Jamie, you can reach any of us at the website, and you can also take a look at some of the programs uh, that we offer and some of the ways we can help. Good. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. Um, you were mentioning uh, the pathway to violence. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yes. And, it, you know, it's really interesting because that's something that we have really grown to understand much better in the last 20 or 25 years. The idea is that people don't just snap. And I think that back in the early days of our field, there was this belief, um, certainly among um, people who didn't work in the field, that somebody could be normal one day and just sort of snap the next day. What we have come to understand is, and this, I'm going to quote Dr. Reed Malloy, who's really a leader in our field. He said, people don't snap, they decide. So that's just a really interesting way to understand it, a really succinct way to understand it. It's important that we know that people tend to what we call ramp up and prepare for acts of violence, and that violence is a process. And what we know is that Often when we go back and look, we can see where a person was moving toward the violent act. They were preparing for the violent act, and they were researching how they were going to that violent act. This is a really helpful concept because it helps us understand what to look for and then enables us to intervene earlier when we see signs that somebody may be moving on that path to violence. 
And is it possible to interrupt them on this journey? Are there steps that can be taken or recommendations that you use if an employer gets uh, an indication that someone may be deciding? Yes, absolutely. And we can interrupt the path to violence um, if we know what to look for and we have the resources available to address that. So if an employer saw somebody who was appearing to move on that pathway to violence, it's going to be really important for them to have, excuse me, resources in place to address that. So asking for help is really, really important. Responding quickly is really, really important, not letting it sit. And by asking for help, I mean we need to discuss uh, and talk about what is going on with that individual with a threat assessment professional with a security professional. Um, we would want to talk with our um, legal team about what is going on. We would want to develop a plan fairly quickly. People, it's interesting, people can move very slowly down the pathway to violence, but people can also move really quickly. So that response and that immediate response is really, really important. I know one of the um, things that we've tried to talk about routinely is that, especially for our HR professionals, you know, it's not a problem that is just their problem. A lot of times HR feels like it's up to them to, to solve this. We think of it really as being an us problem, don't we? We do, and it's not just an HR problem. Um, you know, HR is often the first one to hear about it. And HR is often tasked with finding a, you know, finding a response, finding a solution, finding resources to address the problem. But it really is an us problem, and I like the way you say that, Jamie, because it really is an organizational issue. It's not just the individual. And it's really important to understand that it's, we need to create workplaces that are what we call safe workplaces. Do we have organizations that emphasize safety, not only psychological safety, but physical safety? And is that communicated throughout the employee life cycle? Um, it's really important for people to understand what they can do if they have a concern, what resources like EAP may be available to an individual, and having those support networks in place to help somebody who may really be struggling. The other piece to that is if we have someone who seems to be ramping up, it's important that organizations have resources in place. And I can promise you nobody's going to want to Google threat assessment professional in the middle of an incident. Um, so what I'm saying is it's really important for you to have, all organizations to have, um, on speed dial, people that they can call and they've vetted before an incident occurs. So with threat management, individual security resources, legal resources, um, EAP, it's really important to have those at your fingertips so that you can respond quickly um, if an incident or the potential incident occurs. Sue, can you talk for a minute, too, about when we've been involved and able to consult with an organization, steps that we may have taken to help them, uh, for example, reach out and connect with their local law enforcement, the importance of that? Yeah, Jamie, I think that's a really good point. Um, we really encourage our clients to reach out to whatever local law enforcement agency is in their jurisdiction. Um, and 
Get to know those folks. Get to know who's there. Who is a contact person uh, that you can call if you have a concern or have an incident? I think developing those relationships is really key, uh, really important so you have a contact, um, important so that if you even have a concern, they can do something like increase patrol in your particular area. Or if you have a concern about a termination, they can have an officer close by if there's a concern about safety in that particular uh, incident. So I do think good relationships with local law enforcement are critically important. Thanks. Thanks for that. I appreciate it. Could you take a moment and, you know, we have this new law out here in California, SB 553, that is Mm -hmm. mandating uh, workplace violence prevention programs for uh, employers here. Could you just take a moment and talk about how you would approach the implementation if your organization doesn't have something already in place? What order, theoretically, would you approach to establish that kind of a program? Well, it's interesting. Uh, SB 553, for those of you who are not from California or not familiar with the Senate bill, is the first law in the country that requires employers to have workplace violence prevention programs. And in California, it really applies to virtually every employer with a couple of very limited exceptions. Um, So in getting started with getting prepared for SB 553, it's really important to look at what are the things you have in place and what are the things that you need. Um, Part of what we know about this bill is that you really need to have someone in your organization who's in charge of your workplace violence prevention program. And there are Uh, requirements around what the program entails um, and also who is involved in developing the program. And one of the most important things is that there is a protocol for responding to workplace violence that is written, that there is record keeping about incidents and who responded to them and what the response was. And there's also requirements around training and training your individual um, employees, training your managers as being really critically important. So in getting started, I would really look at, do you have a workplace violence prevention policy? I think that's really the cornerstone of everything you do beyond that with your program. Um, It's also really important to look at, if you've had incidents in the past, what types of incidents have you had? You know, are they type one, two, three, four, some combination of above? Um, It's really important to identify where you may be at risk and tailor your programs and your responses to that level of risk. Some employers may have more than one level of risk. Some employers may have people that are at a front desk, for for example, in a, let's say, a city hall building, and may deal with the public, um, and may have also employees that work in the public works department, and they are exposed to um, the public, but also people in cars and people who are um, maybe out committing crimes. And so we really have to have programs for each of those folks that address how they would handle workplace violence incidents. So that training piece is really important. Record keeping is really important. I'd really encourage California employers, if you haven't yet, to take a look at the language in SB 553 and definitely get some consultation if you feel like you need some assistance in getting going and meeting the requirement, which is um, needs to be met by July 1st of 2024. So time, time is a ticking on that one. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, yeah. Hey, you mentioned the importance of culture and creating a safe workplace. Can you just talk a little bit about what that looks like? 
Yeah, I think culture is really important, um, how, not only with regard to violence and how we respond to violence, but in terms of how we treat our employees. You know, how do employees feel in that work environment? Do they feel supported? Is it a healthy, psychologically healthy environment where they can express concerns and ideas without fear of retaliation? Uh, do we have solid safety plans in the workplace that include workplace violence prevention? And do we have good training and good resources for managers uh, if they are faced with an incident and they don't know what to do? You know, the message really needs to be, you know, to other people. Here's where you can get help. Same for employees. If they're struggling, they need to have an environment where they feel like they can express their feelings and feel like they can get resources to help them when they're struggling. Good. Thank you for that. That's a really important mm -hmm. piece, I think, for any of our HR leadership folks that are listening in. Mm -hmm. um, so in the limited time we have left, is there anything else you want to talk to in terms of resources or um, additional support out there besides you and your colleagues? <laughs> what other resources might be available to the employers that are listening in? You know, it's interesting. One resource I would want to mention in addition to the other things that I've talked about today is employee assistance programs. And it's interesting. When I go in to do training uh, at various organizations, I'm surprised that often even managers are not really very familiar with employee assistance programs. Um, so I would encourage review of those programs and those program benefits for HR, for managers, and for employees. Remind them that they're there. Uh, remind them that they're there to help and that they're anonymous. Um, the employer's not going to know who uses that employee assistance program. So I think that's a really important resource. And, and to kind of wrap up with saying, you know, it is workplace violence is a really important issue. Um, acts and threats of violence need to be taken seriously, and we really want to take a stance as an employer of being proactive rather than reactive. You know, having programs and resources in place to respond quickly and safely, and if in doubt, seek resources, seek consultation, get help. Um, can you talk about ATAP for a moment? Yes, ATAP is a wonderful organization, the Association of Threat Assessment Professionals. It's really, it is the premier organization in our field. It's great for research. Uh, it really develops practice guidelines for practitioners, and they also certify threat managers. So it's called a CTM, Certified Threat Manager Certification. That's an important thing to look at when you have threat assessment issues, uh, threat assessment in law enforcement, mental health, and really emphasizes the fact that a multi multidisciplinary team is really a best practice approach. Yeah, I think 10 years ago, ATAP was really an organization mm -hmm. that was uh, used by people in the field, but now as we're attending the annual conference, there seem to be more and more leadership yeah. and HR people attending, um, particularly from larger organizations. So it, it really is a, a, an invaluable resource, I think. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I think that that's our show for today, and I'd like to thank you, Sue, for being our leading lady and spending time with us. Mm -hmm. And a My special pleasure. thank you to all of our listeners, both in the U.S. and internationally, since Women Lead Radio has an international audience. Um, after today's show, you can catch Women Lead Radio on all subscription podcasts, specifically Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. 
It's been my absolute pleasure to be your host today. Thank you so much for joining us, and have a safe week. Women Leading the Way is produced by Connected Women of Influence, the premier private membership organization where like-focused, business-to-business, executive and professional women connect, collaborate, and cultivate a vast network of high-level affiliations, resources, and professional relationships. For more information about Connected Women of Influence, please visit our website at connectedwomenofinfluence.com.